1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Words that are probably familiar to you. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, so far, we've looked at the first five of these. We looked at love being patient, how love is long-suffering, and how love bears up under provocation without complaint and responds instead. Secondly, love is kind. It responds with kindness, and the kindness is actively doing good. So the first part, patience, you're suffering long. Secondly, you're acting kindly and demonstrating good works towards others. So that's the ones that we looked at a couple times ago. And then last time we looked at the next three, love is not jealous and literally does not boil over with jealousy. So love doesn't envy what other people want, but is excited when good things happen to other people and doesn't see everything in relation to myself. How do I benefit from this, but rejoices when God works in others' lives? And We also saw that love does not brag. It does not call attention to self. Instead, a truly loving person, number one, boasts in Christ. And that's where the joy is found, in Christ and what he has done. And secondly, it looks towards what God is doing in others' lives as well and that it it calls attention to others and praises them and encourages them. And then we saw that love is not arrogant. Love is not puffed up with its own self-importance. And with all of these, um, there's obviously a lot of application to our lives. And we saw that the first couple that we looked at, love is patient, love is kind, were positive. And then we saw that the next three were negative, the three that we looked at last time. Well, there are four more negatives that follow it. And in fact, there's a fifth negative also, not rejoice in righteousness, but that is coupled so closely with the second part of verse 6, rejoices with the truth, that we'll look at that next time. Today we're going to look at verse 5. Today we're going to look at these characteristics in verse 5 of ways that love does not behave. So last time we looked at three ways love does not behave. Today we're looking at four more ways love does not behave. And that is it does not behave uncomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. So let's look at these four together. And again, examine our lives in light of these. So to act unbecomingly is what the New American Standard has, and it can be translated as behave indecently, unseemly, rudely, or shamefully. Now, this word isn't used that frequently in Scripture, but it has been used in just the previous chapter by Paul. And that's when he was talking about the body of Christ, and he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 12, 23. Those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. And in this verse, in that passage, Paul is making an analogy between our physical bodies and the body of Christ, the church. So in talking about our physical bodies, he says, you know, there's parts of our body that, that we keep covered. our private parts, the, the things we, 
we make sure they're not presentable. And that's the word that's being used here. Some things we keep hidden. And in a sense, what he's saying is, the analogy is, we're bestowing honor on that and the care that we take about that. We need to take care of those who are maybe considered less honorable in the body of Christ. So he just has used that word, and from that we can get the idea of what that word means. It's not presentable, not seemly, not appropriate. And uh, in case for bodies, should be covered. So we see that this is something, it describes something that is rude or indecent or unseemly. And rude behavior, unseemly behavior, was happening in the church in Corinth. That was a problem there. And that's why Paul includes it in this list. A number of ways they were way was described in 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we see the situation um, where they were coming to the Lord's Supper together and some members were acting very rudely. Now at that time, it wasn't, they didn't just take the elements that, uh, just the bread and the cup, the, these little wafers, but they had a love feast at the same time. They had this meal together that they would share as a church body. And what was happening there is that some of the members were acting very inconsiderate of others. In verses 20 to 22, he writes, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this I praise you. So what was happening is some who were, had more means, they would bring food to the feast and they would eat all the food first. And even some getting very full, even drunk with, with what was offered and the ones who were less important were not getting much of anything at this feast. And what this demonstrated was a complete thoughtlessness about other people in the church. Just focusing on self. And certainly rude behavior is not unique just to the church in Corinth. I'm sure you're aware that there's actually rude behavior in our day and age. Um, I looked up on Google, which, you know, is how I create all my sermons. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, but it listed 25 rude things that people did, the most common rude things in our culture today. And you could probably think of a few, and I think this list... Cutting in lines, interrupting, barking dogs, not returning your shopping cart, any form of disrespect to the elderly, bad table manners, cutting off others in traffic, tailgating, littering, not using a turn signal. It's a lot of driving ones. I think the person's from LA who wrote this. Uh, Using the last of anything and not replacing it, being late, improper cell phone usage, taking and misusing handicapped parking spots not teaching or enforcing manners in children, taking credit for the work of others, personal grooming in public, (laughs) treating store employees or waitstaff rudely, cashiers who talk on their cell phones and don't acknowledge customers during checkout, uh, blocking the aisles in Walmart and grocery stores, leaving messes in public bathrooms and not washing your hands, driving slow in the passing lane, picking up after your dog's messes. So that's quite a list of rude behavior. And I'm sure if you're living in society and the world, you have seen this world behavior uh, expressed. And dare I say, I'm sure all of us in some way have 
done this kind of rude behavior. What is true about rude behavior? What is the heart of rude behavior? All these different things that are mentioned. Um, they seem like a pretty varied list of what society at least considers rude. What's behind that? Well, I think what is most clearly behind that is acting rudely or unbecomingly is a thoughtless pursuit of your own convenience with the disregard of how others may be affected by your actions. It's a thoughtless pursuit of your own ease, convenience, desires, not caring what other people think. And I think rudeness is... Very, it's very. It's not like I know what'll really bother this person. Uh, I'm going to really bother the next person by not returning a shopping cart. That's why I'm doing it. No, it's I don't really care. I'm only thinking of what's easiest and what's best for me. And this contrasts, of course, with the person who loves. A person who loves does not act rudely because he knows how unpleasant it is to be the recipient of rude behavior, and considers the needs desires, and preferences of others and places them above his own. So rude behavior is not just, isn't that funny that that happens in public, or isn't that just annoying and it's a side thing to biblical truth? No, this is very much connected with what love is. If you truly love, you will not want to inconvenience other people. You not want to put them out. You not want to act in a way that causes them displeasure. Certainly we know that from James 2.8, what James calls the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those who demonstrate love toward others will do so with politeness, public decency, proper social contact, con, uh, conduct, and even their own etiquette and hygiene and attire. And you may think, wait a minute, does God really care about my hygiene and about how I dress. Is bad table manners really a big deal at all? Well, the answer is, it can be. If you are so focused on just yourself and what is nice or convenient or easy for you with no regard for others, that is an example of lack of love. Now, I'm not going to go through and point out those with bad hygiene this morning. Um, because I don't see anyone. I don't know anyone who has bad hygiene. But think in general of your own life. Are there ways? Maybe in that list of 25, you can even think, well, okay, I can be accused of that one. But maybe there's other ways where you give little to others, and all you think about is your own self. Well, that is a lack of love. I know sometimes I've met in groups and we talk about confession of sin, and some have said, oh, I just can't think of anything to confess sin of. I don't think I've sinned this last week. Um, and I think the problem is because we overlook so many things of a lack of love towards others. And a lack of love is sin. We are commanded to love one another. And even being rude and considerate and gracious to others in these ways is a, a necessary demonstration of love. So I appreciate what Pastor MacArthur wrote in the First Corinthians commentary. He says, love is much more than being gracious and considerate, but it is never less. To the extent that our living is ungracious and inconsiderate, it is also unloving and unchristian. Self-righteous rudeness by Christians can turn people away from Christ before they have a chance to hear the gospel. The messenger can become a barrier to the message. If people do not see the gentleness of Christ clearly in us, 
they are less likely to see him clearly in the gospel we preach. Love is not less than being gracious and considerate to others. And it is an important aspect of love, important enough to be included in this list in 1 Corinthians 13. So if we are to put off rudeness or acting unbecomingly, what then do we put on? Again, we always want to think of, all right, if we're talking about putting off or putting sins to death, what needs to replace it? Well, obviously, in this case, politeness, courtesy, caring for others, thinking about what others would appreciate, doing unto others as you would have them do to you. Jesus said, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And certainly that is all-encompassing in everything. Are you treating other people that way, or is your focus on what would, what would I like? What makes it easiest for me? And often the result, when we are so focused on self and what we want, we act rudely or unbecomingly to others. So that is something Paul warns against with love. Well, secondly, the next one we'll look at this morning is love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own, and that's translated in different ways. Different versions, KJV, seeketh not her own, talking of love, her own. ESV does not insist on its own. Uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible is not selfish. NIV is not self-seeking. And all of these have the same idea. It's pretty straightforward what's being said here. It is looking out for self. It is clearly just selfishness. And certainly this was an issue in the Corinthian church. We see that selfishness coming through a lot of ways in the letter of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 10, we see offending others and eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was a disagreement. And there were those who were saying, I know that's not a sin to eat meat sacrificed to idols, so who cares about my Christian brothers and how it might offend them? Well, that is very much seeking your own. We saw again at the church feast, as we mentioned, just thinking of self. How much food do I want? It was rude and it was self-seeking. In chapter 14, we see self-seeking behavior. Speaking out in the worship service created disorder. So there were many ways, even in the church in Corinth, that we saw this self-seeking attitude. And in many ways, selfishness is the complete antithesis to love. And I think this description, love does not seek its own, is really at the heart of all these other descriptions of love as well. It is a self-focus rather than an other's focus. And we instead, instead of putting ourselves on the throne, because that's what it is, it's saying, I get what I want, I'm seeking my own, is to remember when we are saved, if you are a believer, you've been transformed and you are no longer on the throne, it is Christ on the throne. And are you living to please him in all respects? And instead of what... Am I looking for where is my happiness found? Happiness uh, is not found in your, pleasing yourself, but it's found. It's found in serving others. And I've had conversations where the thought is, well, obedience to God means instead of pursuing happiness, I'm pursuing obedience to God, and I need to make that decision in my life. And instead of pursuing happiness, pursue obedience. But that's a false dichotomy. That's not true that you give up happiness by pleasing the Lord or obeying the Lord. Scripture says you find happiness, you find joy in pleasing the Lord. 
you find joy in meeting others' needs instead of your own. It's not, okay, you become a Christian, forget it. There goes happiness. It's like, no, you find your joy in a very different way than before. And Scripture is clear in the need to seek the good of others. Romans 15.2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And a verse, we should look in 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And these are just a few of the verses that focus on looking out for the needs of others and not our own needs. We know that to be true. Do we practice that? Do we live that out? Paul even understood this in his evangelistic ministry. Even in how he shared the gospel and tried to reach people for Christ, he understood it's not my own needs that I'm looking out for. In 1 Corinthians 10, 32-33, he writes, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, no prophet, but the prophet of the many, so that they may be saved. And look how inclusive. I also please all men in all things. Now, is he talking about, while I'm denying Scripture, I'm denying truth? No, he's certainly not talking about that, but he's talking about his preferences, his desires. Um, if he, he says elsewhere, if I have to give up meat to reach people for Christ, I'll never eat meat again. And he sees that it's not self that's what's important. It needs to be seeking the good of others, not of self. And of course, the greatest example of selflessness, self-pleasing love is Christ, is it not? Christ, who existed before he was born as a babe, he was in heaven with the Father, enjoying communion with the Father. Away from this sin-cursed earth, away from all the sin that's around us. And yet he chose to empty himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Talk about not seeking self. What can be a better example of Christ's unselfish love toward us? We not only see that in that passage that's in Philippians 2, but in other places as well of Christ humbling himself to death on a cross. And why did he do this? Why did he come? Why did he give that sacrifice, pay that sacrifice for us? Well, it's his love, his unselfish love. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a... Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It was his love that motivated his sacrifice. Very clearly. And what these verses show us as well, it's not only that Christ, in his love, sacrificed self. But that's an example. It's a model for us to follow. You see there in Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ loved you. And in 5, 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved. This self-sacrificial love, which is the pinnacle of what 
of love expressed in all history is the type of love we are to have for others, this selfless type of love. So what do we, what do we need to put off? What do we put on then? Well, you put off selfishness, right? That's clear. Love does not seek its own. And what do we put on? Well, the first thing we need to put on is we need to recognize others' needs, right? And to be, in a word, sympathetic towards them. Do you care about what others are going through? We will not seek to meet others' needs if we don't know others' needs. If we're not in any way sympathetic and aware of what they're going through. We must take our eyes off ourselves. If you don't see others' needs, you cannot help them. And we see the need for this sympathetic type love a couple places. 1 Corinthians 12 in the previous chapter, talking again about the church. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need to come alongside, share in the same joy as others. Not what is my joy today, what is making me happy, but what is true about others in my life. And so certainly we have application here to every member, to every person in every place. But I think the area where we fail the most in selfishness is frankly inside the home. Outside the home, you don't know what other people think of you. You're concerned about that. What are others thinking of me? How do I project myself? In the home, it's like, all right, well, they already know me. You know, it's uh, the secret's out, so I'm just going to behave as selfishly as I want to behave and look out for myself. And you know what? Rest of the family, you look out for yourselves, and we're just on our own. But that is not, is not to be that way. Love should first start in the home. And I'm in a relationship. Are you concerned about what's bothering your wife? Or what, are you happy with what causes rejoicing for your wife? Or for your husband? Do you think and do you ask and do you know what is on his heart? And talk through those things and really care what's going on in your spouse's life. So certainly in the home, this has to be true to know what is going on in your spouses or your children or your parents, if that be the case. Do you care? But certainly, even outside the home on Sunday mornings, are we seeking our own? Are we selfish? When we come, we see friends that we know. We always like to see people we know and that we're, we get along with, and that's great. Do that. But if the whole Sunday morning you never reach out to others, then are you just seeking out people because you enjoy the conversation or are you trying to meet people's needs and looking out for them? We have uh, new visitors every week and that's a great joy. Are we reaching out to them and getting to know them? Or it's like, that'll be a little uncomfortable because I don't know the person. Well, you know what? It's not about you. How can you encourage, how can you come alongside that person? So love does not seek its own. So we saw it does not act unbecoming, does not seek its own. Next, we see that love is not provoked. And provoked means angered, irritated, exasperated. 
Now, there are times when we should be provoked to anger. There is such thing as a righteous anger. And I think we see that at times. And in fact, the other time in Scripture this word is used, he was in Athens. In Acts 17, 16, he says, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And it was right for Paul to be so provoked because he saw God was not being glorified. He saw people more focused on worshiping these false gods, these false idols, and worshiping the Lord, and he wanted God to be glorified. And that's what righteous anger does look like. But by far, the most instances in Scripture of anger is sinful anger. By far, it's, it's mentioned. And the reason for that, I think, is clear. By far, in our lives, in your life, it's sinful anger that's most commonly is what comes up. And we see throughout Scripture speaking against sinful anger. It says, a fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Twenty-two: An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. And then in James 1, 19 through 20, not another 19 there. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Your sinful anger does not achieve God's righteousness. We need to be very careful in that. You may say, well, look, I'm an excitable person. You know, it's just my personality. I'm that kind of guy. I can't help it. Well, it may be your personality, but it's a sinful part of your personality. Uh, and it's part that you need to repent of. All of us, I believe, are, we have besetting sins. We have those sins we tend towards. One person, a tendency towards anger. And another person, it may be a tendency towards lying. It doesn't mean that any of those are right or okay because you have that tendency. That just means that's a sinful part of you that, you know, you have, number one, been born with a sinful nature, but number two, maybe you've allowed to continue in your life too. So just because you have a tendency towards a sort of sin like anger does not mean that that isn't okay for you to be angry. Now, anger doesn't look the same in all people. Uh, there are different expressions of anger. I think we know that. Some is very intense. You'll see very intense anger, outbursts of yelling, and, and this type of anger is you, people wear it on their sleeve. And you easily say, well, that's an angry person. I, I can tell that. But there's another type of anger, a seething anger, kind of a, a slow burn type anger, which frustration or irritation these uh, extra-biblical words are sometimes used to make it sound not as sinful as it really is. I'm just frustrated. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. Just frustrated. I'm just irritated. Well, often that is a sinful, if not always, a sinful anger. And what does this look like? Well, sometimes it looks like the eye roll. You know, your spouse does something. It's like, yeah, <laughs> or a muttering under your breath. Um, you know, shaking your head some smart remark that you make. Um, this is anger as well. It's maybe not the boiling over anger. It's not the uh, hot temper anger. But it is anger. And you may be prone to that more hot temper, intense, short fuse type 
of anger. And from that, certainly you need to repent. But you may be also the, prone to this seething one, this burning one inside. And that it seems like hardly a week goes by that you're not mm, angry at something. And if that's the case, if you have that internal, no one even may know. I mean, probably some around you know that you're frequently upset. But you may not show it very much, but that is a sinful anger, even if it, you keep it inside and from showing. So really examine your heart in that. Is that something that's happening, that you burn up about something your husband does or your wife does, and every day, you're, as soon as he leaves out the door, you're shaking your head or saying in your breath, stupid idiot. You know? um, <laughs> Or, you know, that is sinful anger, is what that is. And you may think to yourself, well, tell my wife. <laughs> You'd be angry too. You'd have that irritation, frustration. Or you don't know my husband and the things that he does. And you're right, I don't know what goes on in your house. But there is no excuse. You are responsible for how you respond, no matter what your spouse or your coworker or your parent does, any of those. You're responsible for how you respond. It doesn't say the one who provokes is not loving in this passage. It is focusing on the one who becomes provoked. Not the provoker, but the provokee. Are you becoming angry? Are you getting upset all the time? Because whatever your spouse does just drives you crazy. But remember this, if it's your anger... It's your sin. Not, oh yeah, I'm angry. His sin. I'm angry, it's, it's her sin. Your anger, your sin. So if you are getting angry, whether it's outbursts or whether it's the internal, that is where the sin is. Now, why do we get angry? Where does this come from, our anger? I think if we examine that, we can maybe help see then how can we stop it in our lives. Well, it's kind of a three-step process, very simplified, of course. But to make it very simple, a three-step process happens. One, something doesn't go your way. If everything goes your way, are you ever angry? No, why be angry? It's all fantastic. But anger starts with this, something doesn't go your way. The next thing that happens is you feel like you deserve things to go your way. And you determine that justice has not been done. Something has been wrong in this situation. And therefore, what happens? Number three, you respond in anger because you are displeased. This is often the case, or this is, I think, all cases of anger. It follows this process. Now, the first step here, can we kill anger at that point? Something doesn't go your way. I'm sorry to say, but no. <laughs> things will not go your way. That is life. You will have things not go exactly the way you want it to. So we can't stop the anger process at that stage. But step two, we can. You feel like th you deserve things your way and justice has not been done. That is where it needs to stop. That is where you need to say, you know what, I don't deserve things to go my way. I don't deserve any good thing. I deserve God's wrath. And to have anything go my way, I should be responding with gratitude. 
And frankly, when things don't go my way, God has my life for my growth and his glory. So it's that second step where we say, well, I deserve things or I need justice here. You know what? Justice lies in God's hands. We often get angry because we think, okay, we're the ones who are going to make it right. We can fix this. But we need to leave that all in God's hands. He will bring justice. And anger is not ours to express. Again, yes, there is a righteous anger, but that is a rarity. That is when you are concerned about the glory of God and yourself is not in the picture at all. It is you're being concerned about God's glory not being recognized by someone or through some event. Almost always it's this sinful anger. And in this case, we see here of being provoked, we need to be careful not to be the ones that are... So what are we to put off and put on? Well, Colossians 3 talks about it. He says, put them all aside, and he starts with anger. It includes synonyms, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And in Colossians 3, he tells us exactly what to put on as well. Those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. It's very clear. What do we put off? We put off this anger when we put on compassion and kindness and humility. And we'd be very careful not to be one who is so easily provoked. In his book, The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, I appreciate how he put this. He says, it would be a good contest among Christians, one to labor to give no offense, and the other best men are severe to themselves and tender over others. Yet people should not tire and wear out the patience of others, nor should the weaker so far demand moderation from others as to rely upon their indulgence and so to rest in their infirmities with danger to their own souls and scandal to the church. Are you so easily provoked that you're relying upon other people to watch every word they say? You require every other person to walk on eggshells because you're going to get upset. We should have a contest of the one seeking, I'm never going to give offense, the other, I'm never going to take offense. If we do that, we'll see a whole lot less conflict and a whole lot less anger between us. Love is not provoked. Finally, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And the verb here literally means to reckon, to count up, keep score. It's an accounting term. And it's translated the idea he wrongs. Love doesn't keep score and keep track of what other people has done. And, and Paul certainly wasn't a model of this. He said, in my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And that's the same word, not counted against them. And here he is. This is the last letter. This is the letter that uh, Dr. Busnitz uh, preached from this morning in first hour. We see Paul near the end of his ministry, and he says at this trial... Everyone deserted him. And he says, don't count it against them. Who were these people that did not stand with Paul but deserted him? Well, we don't know their names because he never put them down here for us. He doesn't want to be counted against them. We'll never know their names. They're lost to history. He doesn't want it counted against them. If he wanted it counted against them, we may know what their names were. False teachers' names. Let's, <laughs> we read about that this morning, or heard about that this morning. 
So certainly we are not to take, um, let's, let's go back here, take into account a wrong suffer here. And there are, I have heard stories of marriages where a husband or wife literally have kept a list of the wrongs done against them by their spouse. I hope no one's done that in this room. I trust none of you have done that, that you don't have a little notebook at home with the different offenses or a file at home with that or a shelf or a filing cabinet. (laughs) If you have, just throw that away. I don't need to know. Uh, Get rid of that. That's your first assignment from today. But more frequently than not, it's not a written list, but it's in your head. And you know, and the next time a conflict comes up, you're ready for those things. Maybe it's a list of the top five ways my spouse has done me wrong, and that you're ready to bring that out the next time there's an argument. Love does not do that. Love does not keep that list in your head ready to come out with it the next time that there's an argument. Keeping that list in your head is a way of thinking, you know what, I'm going to bring justice in this situation. And we think that, you know what, this will be useful to me in that time of argument as a weapon, and I'm going to be able to use this to prove my case and hurt the other person back for the hurt they've caused me. But the reality is, when you do that, when you keep that record of wrongs in your head, it is doing you more damage than it's doing your spouse or anyone else. It is making you a bitter person making you a person that just dwells on negative things and hurtful things where you will not have joy. It can lead you to depression or despair and harm your relationship with others and affect your fruitfulness in ministry. So if you think, I'm going to keep that record and it'll help me, no, it's hurting you and it's causing you damage. What do we replace it with? Well, forgiveness. Forgiveness is not saying it didn't matter, but it's releasing that person from the guilt of it. It's not that you don't remember. We talk about forgive and forget. And it is true in a sense of you're forgetting to not hold it against that person. You're never going to bring that up. But it's not that you don't remember that it happened, because we know that God says he has cast our sins as far as the east from the west and removed them. But it's not as if... Like, oh, I can't remember what Rodney, his sin the other week. I just plumb forgot. No, God knows, but it will never be brought up again against my account. And that forgiveness is complete. And we see this forgiveness that God had. It says, God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That same word here. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God does not count our trespasses against us when we are saved. And so is that, if that's the kind of forgiveness that God offers, not holding wrong against our account, that is the kind of love we are to express, not keeping track when people have wronged us. There was a story of a lady named Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, She accomplished, she had her critics. And there was one critic uh, who was harsh toward her, and her friend said, remember that lady? That was the lady who was so critical of you the other year. And Clara said, I I don't remember that. 
And Fred said, you don't remember what she said? How can that be? And Claire responded, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. (laughs) And I like how that's worded. I distinctly remember forgetting it. I have chosen to put that in the past. I am not going to hold that to that person's account anymore. That is the type of love that God wants us to have. Well, very quickly to summarize then, how does this apply? How do we live this out? Ask yourself this, do you act unbecomingly? Are you thoughtless about the needs and even the preferences of those around you? Do you seek your own? Unselfishly looking for ways to encourage and strengthen others? What about in your marriage? Are you often provoked to anger? Do your thoughts often go to ways that you feel mistreated? Or do you more likely overlook offenses against you? And do you keep a record of wrongs against you? Or do you choose to forgive and trust the Lord for justice to be done? This is the kind of love that God wants us to live out. And so evaluate yourselves in these areas. How are you doing in this? Are these true of your life? And again, evaluate yourself, not your spouse in these areas. This is for each one of us to apply personally. Colossians 3.14 says, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If we, in this way, there can be unified marriages and unity in the church and unity in so many ways, but we have to put on love, put on these attitudes. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much here in your word. Lord, in these ways that love uh, doesn't behave, Lord, we can see ourselves in these very quickly. And Lord, there is much to repent of. Father, pray that you would change us, that we would be those who truly love. We have the perfect example in Christ. Lord, the love that he showed, not seeking his own, but seeking to save us and to bring glory to the Father through his death and resurrection. And so we thank you, Lord, that not only do we have the perfect example from the domain of darkness and made us those who can walk in ways of love, you have not only shown how to do it, but you have given us the strength to do it through Christ. And so we praise you and thank you for that. May we honor you this week. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.